0: Hi everybody! Welcome to a very special Prog Report podcast. About a year ago, we did a fantasy draft where we had everybody that gets involved with the Prog Report on, and we also had everybody on the Best of 2018. So for this very special episode, we have a few guests. So I'm going to go ahead and introduce everybody, and then we're going to talk about what we're going to do on this episode. So first, of course, uh, you know him from many podcasts that he's been on, Jeff Bailey.
1: Hello. Hello from Belfast, Northern Ireland.
0: Hi, Jeff, and welcome back. And now all the way from Brazil, our friend Daniel. Hey, hey, everyone. All right. And let's see, from a little bit of middle of Florida is uh, Mr. Victor.
2: How you doing, everybody?
0: And last but not least, over in Tennessee is our good friend Kyle.
3: Yeah, greetings from Memphis. I'm a little bit concerned that Jeff got top billing, but that's fine. (laughs) we'll We'll just go with it. I it's did I did win the fantasy draft voting. So Deal with it.
0: It's by seniority he's the oldest. True. Uh, anyway, guys, thanks for being on this. It's going to be a lot of fun. So it turns out that there's two big album anniversaries coming up this month. Um, while you're hearing this, uh, is it is anniversary week for these two albums. The first one is the epic uh, all-time classic from Dream Theater, Metropolis 2. Scenes From Memory, which came out October 26th of 1999, celebrating its 20th anniversary this week. And uh, next is another Portnoy-related album, of course, uh, which is Transatlantic's The Whirlwind, uh, which came out October 23rd of 2009, celebrating its 10-year anniversary. So we figured this would make a good podcast to go over both amazing classic albums and uh, tell little stories and recap some of the good songs we have a few interview clips from the from the uh, various band members that we're going to play and uh, we'll give our opinions and thoughts on these albums sound good awesome
3: yep sounds great yep
0: Okay, so first up, released 20 years ago, Scenes from Memory. This was Dream Theater's fifth album, coming uh, after the sort of commercial failure that was falling into infinity. They wanted to do something to get the band back on track. They came close to breaking up the band. They decided that they were going to argue with the label, and they uh, took producing control. They replaced uh, Derek Sherinian with... Jordan Rudis after the liquid tension experiment and the album came from there.
3: landmark album. They actually moved into uh, a barrier track studio and they lived there for a few months. Um, I mean, I love the behind the scenes from that, uh, that, uh, that DVD there. And uh, for me, it was the first modern Prague album I ever listened to. So I was a, a high schooler and my buddy Kyle, who was in a band with, he actually called me over the phone to play uh, the second track on the album, Overture 1928, and just like listen to this. And you had on the phone listening to it, so I think maybe the next day or two on a bus, listened to the whole CD from start to finish, and was absolutely blown away. I was really into Metallica, a little bit of Rush at the time, but this was really my first entry point into modern Prague and kind of been along for the ride ever since. So huge, huge album in my life for sure.
1: I was reading Mike's sleeve notes in the making of um, CD, which came out on on Dream Theater, the Utsi Jam label, and he talked about it as being an album of firsts, obviously the first with Jordan, um, the first that they composed and assembled almost entirely in the studio, um, their first proper concept album, and the first in which they had sort of 100% control, self-produced, and it pretty much continued um, in that way from there onwards i know that roy had referred to falling into infinity and and again in those notes mike talks about that they had written a metropolis part two a 20 minute um kind of follow-up um which was supposed to be the centerpiece of what became falling into infinity but then when the sort of the producers and the labels started to pull in different directions it got put to one side and that actually again that came out on another one of those dream theater releases um as an instrumental but it it has lots of parts that ended up um and Mike sort of says in, in the notes you know we had the idea of doing a concept album and we had this 20 odd minutes of music and we put those two things together and that's what got us this album
0: So what we wanna do also is each, we're gonna pick um, a song off the album, each of us that we wanna talk about that, we wanna highlight. Um, I'm gonna start off with Fatal Tragedy, which really might be my favorite song on the album, actually. Um, I just really love the chorus on this one. And I like, if you remember the, um, I think it's the Portnoy uh, drum DVD. Is that the one where he explains the ending section? And that that for me was a real education at the time because I always wondered how they did that kind of interplay, and it was very it became very simple. And once you learned the mathematics yeah, you know,
4: behind it, like four it, then three,
0: then and then two, three oh, and yeah. two, yeah. And now from now on, I always remember exactly yeah. how that part goes. They
2: refer it, to it, that oh, section as the the uh, shrink grow oh. section.
0: Right, that that was it, and. Uh, and so that was always really cool. I thought that was neat. Um, before we're going to play a clip of that, but I want to throw, uh, to an interview that I did with Mike, um, about scenes from memory and uh, a little bit about their thoughts in going into making the album.
5: With scenes from memory, um, it was do or die. Uh, you know, we basically were on the verge of, of breaking up on the heels of the falling into infinity tour and, uh, we knew things had to change and, uh, one of the big changes was the keyboard player and uh, as much as i love derek and and still to this day he's one of my favorite keyboard players of all time and i love his style and his personality it just didn't feel right with what was dream theater at that time and uh, after john and i had made two albums with jordan uh with the liquid tension experiment we just knew that Jordan was exactly what the what Dream Theater needed um, to to you know turn over a new leaf and and make a, a strong change. So we brought Jordan on board, and uh, you know the big internal change was that we decided: look, if if this band is going to stay together, we we don't want any input from the label. We don't want to work with an outside producer. We don't want to hear from anybody. Everybody's just got to leave us the fuck alone and let us do what we do and that meant myself and John Petrucci taking control and self-producing from that point forward. And uh, so between John and I self-producing, between Jordan injecting new life into the band, um, and then the whole idea of doing our first concept album and basing it as a sequel to one of our most beloved songs, it just, you know, all the wheels were in motion for, uh, you know, what turned into being a you know a masterpiece and in my mind um, the, the the greatest achievement of the band
6: i shut the door and traveled to a track.
4: album for me, like I'm on the younger side of the fan base here. And my story with Dream Theater, the first ever song I ever heard, like Modern Prague, was Spirit Carries On. Uh, a really good friend of mine showed me that song. So naturally, I had to go and see uh, the album it came from. So it led me to know all the songs and bands and the albums that I love now. Um, so when uh, I went on to listen to Scenes from Memory, uh, Home, the song, it really grabbed me. So, I decided to to talk a little bit about about that one today. And the reason it grabbed me, Home sounds very unique and different from the rest of the album. Like it has those guitars and the build up in the beginning. It it, it sounds really cool and amazing. And it has one of Petrucci's coolest solos with uh, with the background rhythm yeah. guitar in the back and all the, the rhythm instruments speaking to each other in sync, it's really cool. Like, And one of my favorite details are the, the background vocals with Mike and John. They, they sound like yeah. just desperation, you know, uh, claiming for help. It's really cool. They're screaming for something. As far as I know, from, from what I remember, uh, the song is from the perspective of both brothers, like The Miracle and The Sleeper. Maybe because of that, I think it has the most amount of callbacks to the original Metropolis, not only musical, but lyrical as well. Um, And although it's very heavy and technical, at the same time, it's very emotional. So I love that song. It has like the, I remember I was told, there's a new love that's born for each one that has died. So lots of little tidbits and moments that are very cool. Yeah, so love that song, man. Definitely one of my favorites for sure,
0: One of the uh, one of the cool things about that song, and going back to when they were working on the album, was that everything was kept secret that it was Metropolis Two. and um, based on based on the song they didn't let anyone know, not in any fan form or anything. And the single that was sent out to radio and to press was just a CD single of home, and it was an edited version of it. And I have that actually. And all that it says on it is, you know, dream theater home. And it doesn't say anywhere Metropolis too, It just says scenes from a memory. And that's all they let anyone know until the album came out.
2: No, you guys shared. You, I thought you guys shared that single when you guys did the um, uh, the, the the podcast uh, with the Neil Morris band. Yeah, yep. yeah, yep. yeah we did. I remember yeah, we, I remember um, hearing that song through the phone. My my brother had gotten his hands on uh, on the single. And I remember hearing it. I remember being very psyched about it. And as Daniel described, all the different sounds, and it just, it was a really cool thing, especially with the hope of, you know, Jordan Rudis has come over, you expecting something different. And it was, and it was really cool. But there was absolutely no hint, and we had no idea that it was anything having to do with the original Metropolis. So it must have been That, that goes <laughs> along with that.
0: All right. So with that said, we're going to play a little bit of Home from Metropolis 2.
2: Well, Dance of Eternity just uh, seems to be um, sort of the peak of of the album. But, you know, in anticipation of Jordan Rudis having joined Dream Theater officially, uh, the excitement of the first two Liquid Tension or the only two Liquid Tension experiment albums, um, there was just this idea of how great is this album going to be if they really unleash some sort of uh, instrumental chaos. And um, I'm just uh, quoting from Essentials, Modern Essentials. Mike Portnoy (laughs) in an interview said, we knew we wanted to have a big instrumental in the middle of the album, the same way that Metropolis part one had a big instrumental section in the middle of the song. So when it came to that point of the album to write it, We knew we wanted to write the sickest, most insane instrumental ever, so we had lots of bits and pieces from the original Metropolis Part 2 demo, which I think Jeff alluded to earlier, and then from there, we ended up writing all these really insane things with Jordan's contributions, so yeah, we went all out for that one. When you listen to the song, it is just insanity. At that point, we really hadn't heard anything this chaotic. From a metal standpoint, Petrucci was using the seven string guitar, which really brought in the dimensions in the past that they had used in like Awake. And then you had Jordan Rudis doing like ragtime piano right in the middle of everything. Then you had the Zappa part where, you know, you're just lost trying to just keep up with things. And then all the different time signatures in the same DVD we talked about earlier with Portnoy's uh, Liquid Drum Theater. Is that the one? That's right. Um, he, he actually shows his, his drum charts and the breakdown, and he goes through with a metronome that they were using in the studio. And that's when you realize just how complex yeah. that is. If you look up on YouTube, this is how sensational this song is. There are <laughs> There are videos on conductors conducting all the different time signatures there is a a synthesizer setup that shows you all the notes with all the time signatures. There's a guy that's beatboxing, flipping uh, cards, doing that. So it's, it, it's also become very interesting in YouTube, all the different renditions of this and all, of course, all the traditional playthroughs, whether it's guitar, whether it's keys, whether it's, whether it's drums. The other thing is also is you can find like Berkeley college of music, piano recitals that do a piano rendition of this song so this song is really i think um the climax of you know instrumental metal prog so time signature changes i want to i want to get in on that because you brought that up
3: does anyone know what the exact number of time signature changes is you do not on that song i do not what but you do because you can google it it's 108 which is incredible so yeah in the one song yeah in the one song Unless wow. this, unless this is false news or fake news, but uh, one hundred eight, I think it's pretty crazy. <laughs> I, I think it's become the quintessential Dream Theater instrumental, and I'd even go as far as to say the quintessential Prague metal instrumental.
4: Um, yeah, as of recent, like it's very unconventional for instrumental songs to become hits, right? Before that, like in Prague, you had double As if you see Rush in real life, you have the whole crowd just jumping to the riff. Then I think. Right. That, The next one, the next big instrumental to become kind of a hit, like I don't think on the same level, but Dance of Eternity, everyone that's a fan of the style, they know about it and they they know it's crazy. Well, for
0: many Dream Theater fans, this would, they'd say it was their favorite song, which would be unusual for the band with this many songs and actually very few instrumentals um, if you look at it. But I want to go to, uh, well, earlier this year, I had a, a chance to do a, Prog Report Top 5 podcast with uh, John Petrucci and Jordan Rudis. And we got into talking about the Dance of Eternity in that podcast. So I'm going to throw to a little bit of that and let them talk about their views on the song.
7: I remember that song was kind of a blend of... We were trying to put themes that were originally in Metropolis Part 1 in there. And then we also were doing something which contributes to the instrumental sections in our music um, to them being so angular and wacky and weird where you you don't know what the next thing is going to be, you know, Mm
6: -hmm.
7: is, is going to bring. It's kind of like space mountain in Disney world. Like you can't, it's in the dark, so you can't tell what's going to happen next.
6: Mm -hmm. Right.
7: Um, And, and we do that by literally taking ideas that have nothing to do with one another (laughs) and <laughs> you know, be like yeah i have this cool wacky thing that i wrote let's put that in there you know it's like you're making a soup let me Master try a soup <laughs> <laughs> right right, <laughs> right i wonder how that will taste and then the challenge as songwriters is is how you do that in such a way where it does sound musical it does sound purposeful even right. though it might throw you for a loop there, there is a way that you have to connect those things whether it's you know having to do with the the time signatures or rhythmically or harmonically trying to figure out how to like, this is something Jordan does so well, it's just trying to figure out how to like modulate into the right key to get to another section. So
8: I remember that song was a real opportunity to play around with some like interesting compositional techniques. There was definitely that element, like John said, of creating this soup of all these cool ideas. But there was also an element of that we really got into of like taking motifs and riffs. um, And we kind of explored this in Liquid Tension as well, where we take something that might exist in the high register you know, of an instrument or just the the, the band sound, and then move it into the low register and see what we could put on top of it. So there was a lot of that where, okay, let's take that riff. For me, it was a matter of let's put it in the left hand or in the bass and then compose something in the right hand. And also, uh, you know, the the, the humorous thing that people always comment was the little honky tonk section that that, uh, was on the piano. Right. i was literally just having fun in the studio with the guys i just wanted to i wasn't serious i just wanted to make them laugh so i took the riff that we were playing was this really heavy kind of linear unison riff and i and I just made it into a honky tonk thing, and everybody <laughs> and I thought that that would be the end of it. But somebody, maybe Mike Borden would said, "Oh, we got to put that in." And I was like, "Okay, cool, <laughs> you know, put it in there." Those
0: are, those are the parts that would always make me laugh when you like. Well, I how are they and, throwing this in there and yeah. making it
8: work? And I think I think we kind of like were reminded or we learned that you know in in our serious prog or any serious prog, it's always great to have a little bit of humor. You know, it make it really lightens things and, it, and allows people to enjoy there's certain things that allow people to enjoy music more than you know other things like if your band is like too academic or technical it's you know it could be amazing but you tend not to totally like love it but if some but if music has a little bit of humor and has melody and heart then you know people are drawn to it so it's one of the things that we're very conscious of and we enjoy you know in dream theater that I think helps to uh, make our music uh, something that the fans can really love
3: So my favorite song on uh, this album is The Spirit Carries On. I think uh, my favorite dream theater lyric might be the opening line. The Spirit Carries On. Where do we come from? Why are we here? Where do we go when we die? Um, Classic. I mean, whether you're into existentialism or the deep questions of life, uh, theology or whatever. I think that line is great. Um, It's probably one of my favorite vocal performances by James. Um, And I think... Story-wise, we, we've sort of alluded to the story. If obviously, if you're listening to this podcast, you know the story, so there's no need for a spoiler alert. Um, but I love how the story sort of builds to this moment. Um, Nicholas finally understands his past, his connection to Victoria. There's this resolution. There's a moment of clarity for him. This sort of sense of a happy ending, and of course, that's unfortunately uh, not where the story ends. And we'll get to that probably next. Um, I think for a band that's accused of being overly technical and for those of us that are musicians that are drawn to the technicality of dream theater, of course, um, it's not bad that they're technical, but, uh, this is a song that shows that they are more than just a technical band. Um, I think it's dream theater's most beautiful song. It's certainly their best ballad or their slow song. I think it's my favorite of that. Um, and then I think Petrucci to to label what's his most beautiful solo, who knows? Uh, But it's certainly in the running for that. Uh, Maybe his most lyrically beautiful solo in some ways. Um, It's also, I think, one of their most popular songs. When you look up on uh, Setlist FM, it's their sixth most played live song of their career. The top five are all from images and words. And so you could say it's their most popular from their later era, their middle era. Um, And then I love the live version. And I don't know what y'all would say is your favorite live version. For me, it's the one that I first saw, which is Scenes from New York. I love uh, – they've got Teresa Thomason who sings. Even though she messes up the lyrics, um, when the gospel choir comes in at the end, uh, it's just a perfect moment, I think. So, for me, that's, uh, again, my favorite song on the album. It, it has this Pink Floyd vibe, and it's just awesome. Love
4: it. And This song holds a very special place in my heart as well. Like I was saying earlier, the first song I ever heard – the first Dream Theater song I ever listened to, a prog song, whatever, however you want to label it. But um, – I love the solo in particular, it builds up to it, and it feels like it's not only Petrucci soloing, it feels yeah. like the whole band is complementing mm-hmm. the solo, like Mike's notes, he, he follows Petrucci and, and young and, and Jordan, he, he chords. it's all perfect. The, the whole package, uh, it's just, this song is just too much, man, <laughs> I think yeah. they nailed it.
0: It's interesting to me, though, with a band like this, with their prog metal background and things like Dance of Eternity and Home and uh, it, more of the metal based stuff, that the audience really liked this song and looks at it as one of their favorites. And that's uh, you know surprising to me, although I think it's deserving. But it, it, I wouldn't have expected that when I first heard the album, that this would be one that kind of stood throughout all the decades for them.
2: It's the emotional connection that we all finally get to make with dream theater. We're not used to having this sort of emotional connection. It's, it's more of, uh, you know, being just in awe of the technical prowess that they have, like Kyle mentioned earlier, but having this song and, um, in the, uh, in the life scenes from New York, if you listen to the commentary, when they finished doing that song and Portnoy is standing up in the drum set, pointing out at the, at the choir that just sang with them, he, he makes the comment that, you know, this, this is our top. This is, we have not done better. And uh, so it's something that not only builds in the album itself, but just in performance wise, you know, it's something that did peak, which we hadn't had this experience from them before. However, this is their, you know, a concept album that really, the story enabled itself to build in this way and we're attached to the characters at this point. Um, so yeah, it's, it's something that, uh, that you can emotionally connect to great melody and, uh, and just a, a great, uh, climax in that.
1: So, in terms of the song I've picked, and I realize it might not be particularly hard to guess, but question, what is the only Dream Theater song that has been sung by James Labrie, Neil Morse, and Ross Jennings? And the answer is, Finally Free. It was done by Transatlantic on their very first tour, it was done by Shattered Fortress on that tour, and obviously it's been done by James James Um Yeah, the conclusion of the album. It's interesting, I... I, I i find it interesting listening to you guys talking about it because i know on different places we've talked about being lyric guys and being music guys and i must admit i've enjoyed scenes for a memory for for a very long time without really understanding the story um of it um i wasn't a big fan of awake or falling into infinity but this album was one that i really really liked and obviously it's the conclusion so you've got you know bit of narration you've got the sound effects it's the true kind of concept album um thing i I love the you know from the orchestral intro right through to the kind of the sort of slightly funky feeling good this friday afternoon part then there's the sort of one last time it's pink floydy there's like a nearly like a comfortably numb guitar solo in the middle of it you know and then that but their bodies lie still and then you know the drum madness at the at the ending. It's just, you know, I think it's about twelve minutes long. It's just an absolutely brilliant, um, conclusion, and it ends the album with with what, guys? Well, uh, the, the record player, <laughs> the scratch which record.
3: Is, what does that remind which, you of,
2: Jeff? What well, Does that remind me of which is the beginning is of the, the beginning album? Album. of the next yeah, album? Yeah, yeah. that's right. They they started they started that sequence. Yeah, that's where that began.
9: Yeah so
3: so it reminds me of another song uh, jeff as a beatles fan uh, do you know what song that might be the the drum solo the outro all that all that whole section have you ever put this together maybe i'm the only one i, I want you it reminds me of i want you yeah she's so heavy it, it reminds me of that sort of exactly. that repeating pattern and of course ringo doesn't you know yeah. solo over it but it, it feels like mike's version of that song if you were able to kind of let loose and play and it even has that sort of that repeating section on the vinyl version of that. Um, I think that's kind of what was the inspiration for that. Um, of course, I love it for all the the drumming madness, and when he plays it live, it's even better. But man, I, I love the kind of the hypnotic nature of that two to three minutes there towards the end of it. It's yep. fantastic. Love
6: this feeling inside me finally found my life I'm-
0: So uh, where do you guys rank this album in the pantheon of great Dream Theater records? Is it one or two? Yeah. It's, is, it, instance, is it one for everybody?
3: It's one for me. And in, in fact, it's it's my favorite progressive album. First. It's a, definitely a Desert Island album. I mean, I'm just being honest. It's, it's, my, it's as perfect yeah. as an, an album as Dream Theater has made. And it's it's my favorite of the genre. So I'll just say that.
2: Wow. It's um I would say it's number one for me and, and Roy and I have had many conversations about this. Um, it's it's my preference. Um, I don't know if historically I can argue that it is better than images and words just because images and words is kind of what gave them notoriety to get to where they got to with this album. But in this album they they went on their own and they did it their way. When you read the book, uh, whatever interviews Mike says about that is, they were doing it their way.
0: I I always still put images and words number one. I think I've I've probably alluded to that a bunch of times, but it's it's a close second um, just because of what images and words means to me discovering the band and I think what it means to progressive metal in general but but yeah I mean it's I, splitting I think they're definitely
3: one A and one B if you're a fan of I mean at least the way oh, yeah. I see those I albums. Think I think, I think for production wise it's it's not a comparison. I think the production True. of uh, scenes is way better. Certainly Absolutely. from a drum standpoint. And then I think the fact that it was a concept for me pushes it over, over, over the top. And I think compared to other concept albums where they maybe don't incorporate the sound effects or really a tremendous story, the story can stand alone as a film. Um, and then lyrically, vocally, I mean, James worked on his lyrics, uh, sorry, his uh, vocal parts, put some extra effort into it, had a, had a separate producer for that. Was it Terry Brown that worked with him on the vocals? Um, so I, I just think it all comes together on that
1: album. Yeah, for me, no. For me, it, it was it was the 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 first Dream Theater album that I really, really, really loved. Um, so definitely, definitely one of my favorites.
0: All right, so that concludes uh, our discussion on Scenes from Memory. Um, let's go ahead and move on to the next album, which is Transatlantic's The Whirlwind, which again came out on October twenty third of two thousand and nine. Um, just another incredible classic uh i'm gonna let jeff kick off the uh sort of intro discussions on this one jeff
1: yeah okay so i I was doing a little bit of digging through neil's inner circle uh emails that he sends out just for a bit of history because i couldn't really remember Mm -hmm. um we talk about october 2009 and a few times before we've commented how this album started to be recorded in april 2009 and was on the shelves in october 2009 which really is an incredibly quick period of time um so we have neil who has left spock's beard and transatlantic transatlantic haven't been together for a long period of time nor was it guaranteed that they would do so again neil's friend todd Morell in 2008 suggested he should write a transatlantic piece and neil did that He finished it in July 2008 and um, he began to contact the transatlantic guys in December 2008 and at that point it looked like 2010, late 2010 was going to be the first time that they were going to be available because of Marillion, because of Dream Theater, because of Flower Kings. But they managed to find 12 days in April 2009 and neil pete and roina all brought ideas um the whirlwind name was from neil's demo but actually the main whirlwind theme there was a totally different whirlwind theme that was part of that roina has released demos of pretty much fully formed versions of a man can feel and out of the night um and neil had a 43 minute piece probably less than half of which they actually used and presumably then they got together mike did his gleaner role as he always calls it and um together they put put this this concept album together it was first so finished recording in april 19 mixed july 19 on the shelves as roy said on the 23rd of october seven months i mean it's really just incredible mm-hmm. um and again I, what i wanted to ask you guys you know a concept album so you know, is *Whirlwind* the concept album?
0: It's a concept only in that they they call it one song. That's to me. I mean, it's it's a sort of an overlaying concept of the *Whirlwind* and and the themes. It's a broader concept, that,
4: right? It's a but yeah. I don't
0: I don't think it's a concept in the yeah. same way *Scenes from a
1: Memory* yeah, was. Yeah, or I guess. *Tommy*, or *The Wall*, or yeah.
3: Yeah, it's not yeah, a rock so opera. I, I don't really think of it as a concept. I mean, I, I, and I also don't know that I think of it as one song, to be fair. it, It's sort of one movement of music. Um, but uh, it's hard I to like, like it.
6: Yeah.
1: <laughs> yeah.
0: Well, I think where uh, I just had a discussion on Fate's Warning, and they have a, a one song concept album, Pleasant Shade of Grey, where that one is a little harder to pick out a song mm-hmm. yes. and just say it's its own thing and listen to it. You know, the whirlwind, I think you can do that. You can put on rose-colored glasses if you just want to hear that one song. And it sounds like a song. And I think you can do that more with with this album. One thing I want to throw to real quick is uh, uh, I had an interview with Neil where we talked about the whirlwind. And how the process got started, which you were alluding to, Jeff, and how he got first in touch with Mike. And the idea uh, was just through an email communication. And he tells a story about that, which I want to play here real quick.
9: So I wrote this piece called The Whirlwind. I sat with that for several months. I remember I had just done the demos and then I went to Europe and and, uh, just kind of not being sure if it was really the right thing about Transatlantic and then, you know, praying more and more over the months and then finally contacting everybody. Uh, I contacted Mike first and the funny thing was we had a bunch of other things to talk about. Like we talked about this, that, and the other thing. And, uh, in an email. And, uh, then I, uh, I finally, at the end of the email, I an email, I said, oh, and hey, what about getting Transatlantic back together and working on this piece? I said, oh. and he, his email back was like, wow, talk about burying the lead. It's kind of a funny thing. But, um, well, I wound up presenting that demo to Transatlantic, but that isn't, re- I mean, we took some some parts of what I had done, but really, what we wound up doing with Transatlantic was quite different. And you know, so I can't say that I didn't really write it. what you, what you hear on the Transatlantic record is something we all collaborated on.
1: Yeah. So um, I mean, I love the the overture and the whirlwind opening. Um, you know, to me, it's the real show starter. I mean, I, I've seen it live, you know, it's a fanfare. I can remember at Morse Fest 2015 when it started in the encore, you know, it was just a sort of everybody on their feet, hands in the air moment. It's a, it's a, just, I don't, I don't know who, who wrote that piece. Um, and, and the other great thing then is that that's sort of the theme that keeps popping up in different places in the album. And in fact, even, even even, at the very end you know there's the the variation on that so that that's that's the thread that runs that runs through it um and i, I can just remember um i was fortunate enough to I actually saw the whirlwind live the final three full performances um the london one which is the shepherd's bush dvd the manchester show which was last night of the tour was a very very loose night that's on Uh, more is never enough and then the high voltage um, performance which is a big outdoor huge crowd uh you know every time just that kicks off um brilliant and and here's hoping that that we hear that soon
0: yeah we should note that at this time the band are currently in sweden in a studio working on the fifth album which uh Hopefully it will be released sometime in 2020. Uh,
4: So one thing I love about the overture is how they present a bunch of the different themes that will be repeating over the album and the transitions they have in between them are just perfect. And they work well as a, as an opener for the album. I don't know if this was one of the cases that they had the whole album already written and then came back and wrote the overture or if they already had
0: I always wonder that with all the overtures,
4: if they do that. I know they did. Yeah,
0: I can tell But you know, it's an interesting question. Uh, How many songs called Overture have Mike and Neil been involved (laughs) in? That would be an interesting 14, probably.
4: Yeah.
1: Well, I know that um, in Neil's, in Neil's, so Neil has put out on the Inner Circle, his 40 odd minute demo, and it does begin with an Overture that has some of those bits. But the, the thing about it is that it only refers to the bits that he had actually written at that point. So, I I mean, it isn't, it isn't, it isn't fully in place, but clearly he intended it to start with an overture, but then lots of them do.
0: All right. So with, with that said, why don't we play a little bit of the overture uh, opening to the album from the Whirlwind. with this album um there's a lot of great songs to choose from um when i'm thinking about it one of the ones that just always comes to mind for me is is the one called the man can feel which is i don't know if roy Stolt wrote this track exactly uh he, he did but um it sounds like him he sings on it and it sounds something like that you'd find on a flower kings record um he just has this really unique voice it's not a not a great singing voice, but it's just the perfect singing voice for the stuff he writes. You know, it just works so well. And uh, and I think just some of the instrumentality on this song is just killer. Um, and it's in a great spot of the album. It also brings back some of the earlier themes. They do that throughout the album on almost every song. There's yeah. just some repeating parts uh, that, that you feel over and over again. Um, and uh, what's the other one that comes right after it? Out of the night. Yeah. Uh. Right after that, it's just tr- the transition there is just so perfect. Right. Mm-hmm. Um. And that song, that song's killer too. <laughs> it's a really great chorus. Um. But I. One of the interesting thing that happens when they that happened, uh, rather when they recorded this album, uh, was that they didn't let anybody know this was happening. Whereas now, uh, you know, with social media and how into that mic is, there's no. There was not going to be a way. <laughs> that the whole world wasn't going to know they're working on the album right now. And of course, if you follow Mike, I mean, there's footage every day of, of stuff going on, and that's great, and it's awesome to let us in. But at the time of this record uh, being recorded, nobody knew the band was coming back together. And Mike talks about that in this interview.
5: You know, we, we had taken a, an eight-year hiatus, and, uh, you know, nobody knew if transatlantic would ever reunite so we actually got together in secrecy when we made the entire whirlwind album uh it was a complete secret nobody knew that we were working together again and we were making a new record um and neil presented to us a demo of a song called the whirlwind and at that point it was maybe 40 minutes long um so when we got together we kind of used that as the the blueprint to work off of. And we knew it was going to be a a single song, multi-chapter concept piece. And, uh, we took Neil's whirlwind demo and, and chopped out bits and pieces of it. And then also worked with other ideas and demos that Pete and Royna had. And, uh, we, we took Neil's idea and concept, uh, but really kind of built it as a band from scratch. And uh, from there, we ended up writing this, you know, uh, 75, 79, I don't don't remember how long it is offhand, but, uh, you know, this 70 plus minute uh, concept piece, which at the
1: time uh, ended up
5: being, in my my personal opinion, my greatest achievement since uh, Scenes from a Memory.
1: Yeah, so Reiner did put out um, a bunch of demos from his website a while ago, and included among those were A Man Can Feel and Out of the Night, um, so... What about a clip from A Man Can Feel, the original Royner Stolt demo?
6: And so you think you're in control Yet one more gloomy day unfolded Pushing panic from your door one bus, one life, and one world order. All classics are long overdue. The new frontiers, a scary prospect. Hollow icons of revolving doors. The pale widers all tomorrow, have stranger in his home. Now what makes it all come apart? A man can sense the speed of falling down. No sense, no solid ground. And a dawning sound.
4: Well, a little of the background of how I first found out about Transatlantic the band. Um, like I remember first finding out about them maybe six months before the whirlwind was announced. So it's likely I was searching about them while they were recording the album, <laughs> and I was looking for Portnoy side projects. But Transatlantic and Liquid Tension were definitely my favorites. Uh, I used to listen to a lot more heavier stuff at the time. So I remember that I loved how Transatlantic was fresh and new. And it was very different for me than the usual stuff that I listened to. Um, right away, I loved the two albums. Like Stranger in Your Soul is still probably one of my three favorite songs ever. So, yeah, I remember I was loving the those albums. And, and of course, I, I was reading the news that they disbanded years before I learned about the band, so of course I was disappointed. And then, boom, <laughs> they announced they were back, so I was super happy. And then the Whirlwind was out; I loved it right away too. And but my favorite thing was they released the the Whirlwind Live, and that's by far my favorite live DVD ever. Like I love the whole performance; it's the perfect set list. Um, and there's a, a cool story about. Behind the DVD about how I, I met one of my friends, he was there, and then he posted about it in the forums and whatever. And big story. I'm, I won't go about it too much, but anyway, uh, about rose-colored glasses. That that's that's a, an awesome song. Uh, it's a very special song. It's a great meaning, and the whirlwind is about like a man that goes through a a man or a person a person goes through a complete catastrophe but he rises above it and rose colored glasses is a lot about the central message so it has a very special meaning it's one of my favorites in the neo ballad category
1: yeah neil neil that's a song that neil wrote after his his father died and he he discovered that his father i don't know if he discovered it then but he his father he just he found out relatively later on that his father had been a choir master and had been Quite um, got disillusioned with the church and took nothing to do with it. And I think by the time then they, um, his kids came along, he 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 had left all of that behind him. And that's kind of the, the sort of the theme of that. Mm-hmm. Thinking about, well, you know, I wonder, you know, uh, you know what 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 was going on with with him. Yeah, it's, a, it's an amazing song, and that closing section is very
4: yeah, very emotional. Like the bridge, emotional. the the part of the city of fire. Everyone in the audience yeah. always gets super emotional. When Neil live, yeah. alive, he always sings it one octave above the studio version. And that's my favorite part. I mean, everyone's always crying, all the grown men. Neil, he always is, <laughs> so we're used to him. But anyway, and it leads back to the main theme with the strings and the bass battles. Roy's solo is great. Uh, overall, a very strong song. One of their best, in my opinion.
0: The guitar part, right after that "City of Fire" middle, that whole instrumental breakdown yeah, with the guitar part—that is super just amazing. Intense. It's just yeah. such a cool, such a cool part. Uh, let's go ahead and play a clip of uh, "Rose Colored Glasses."
6: Long ago, he set the ship
3: We're skipping a few songs down the line now. A lot of great songs in there. But my favorite on the disc, perhaps, is Is It Really Happening. I love this song. I, I like, you know, whether this is a concept album or not, or however you want to look at that, it does have the feel of something like Off the Wall or Off Dark Side of the Moon because of the combination of these news clips. You've got these news clips about weather, uh, and then you got that combined with the wind and the rain, and it gives this sort of um, kind of foreboding cinematic quality to this track. Uh, And it allows it to sort of build, uh, the lyrics on the song are incredibly simple. Um, a lot of great lyrics on this album. And just because there's, I think 17 different words used, I I counted them up, repeated over and over. It doesn't mean that it's not uh, worthwhile from a lyrical standpoint. Um, I think it actually helps to generate this sort of a, a mantra or a chant to this song, which I think works really well. And it helps to build the song, which it builds to this incredible climax. But, um, I love how they approach the vocals, too. I love how simple the melody is, and they layer it with uh, everyone singing in the live version. I think all five of them are singing. Um, I especially love the low octave part they throw in there. It gives it this sort of dark, sort of emotional context. Um, the star of the song, though, for me at least, is the, uh, the instrumental final three minutes. It's got all these great uh, unison parts, this amazing solo. Um, and then I think, and I'm going to say this, uh, my favorite section from any transatlantic song is the final two minutes that begins at 6.19. Um, I think it's sort of their quintessential moment. And when it ends on every live version, uh, the crowd goes wild, right? Um, but uh, Mike, I especially love what he does on the drums. He starts turning the beat around, keeping things off balanced, which is uh, to keep you on your toes. And it also helps to build the energy. Uh, then they start throwing in these little syncopated parts to kind of add to the madness. And then, of course, um, the tempo speeding up, especially when they play it live. And then it ends in this big flourish to me it's it's perfect those two minutes there at the end are just amazing
1: yeah i i love i love watching that on the on the the dvd because for those of you who haven't seen it the transatlantic stage setup is normally mike facing on the right hand side of the stage facing across to neil and there's so much kind of interplay between the two of them those shows were filmed at the end of a tour where they were totally in the zone and they were kind of having fun with it as well it's it was an incredible thing yeah. to hear live. Did any of you guys see the Whirlwind live?
6: No, <gasps>
1: I missed oh, it. The biggest Wait, way to rub it in. I We're, think you yeah, saw
0: what three, three, times, three times, times in a row.
2: Yeah. Nice. Yeah. Uh, uh, they don't they don't come to Florida.
1: <laughs> to come to Chile.
2: So, actually, for
0: me, for me, this was uh the, you know this came out in 09 They toured in 2010, right? Um, I had not seen. Any, any Neil Morris-related project at this point yet. And I had been a fan for 15 years at that point. And that's sort of... Shameful. Uh, it was just <laughs> one of those things. And, you no, know, but the amazing... Listen, they didn't tour much here. Uh, Prague in America was way less of a thing than it is now. And you didn't have all the websites like the Prague Report. And oh, yes. you certainly didn't have you didn't have the cruises, which have had a big influence on the amount of exposure all these bands get. You didn't have Morse Fest. You didn't have, you didn't have a lot of this stuff. And all of a sudden the floodgates really opened, um, around 2012, 2013. And oddly enough, I've probably seen Neil Morse more than any, anybody else that I've ever seen in the last seven I years. I
4: counted, um, um, just like, Three days ago, I've watched him in different configurations, like Neil. It's 40-something times.
0: Yeah, <laughs> it's, not, so I mean, it's, when you throw in all the cruises and yeah, the multiple so performances it's, it's, and it's, it's, the Morse Fest and the whole, yeah, it can be. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it was... And you
3: consider that's all within like a yeah, you know seven or eight-year yeah, year window. It's, it's
0: really become, I mean, it's been pretty crazy the last seven or eight years when you look at what's turned around for, for the U S yeah. fan of, of this kind of music. And, um, pretty cool when one of the things that's always amazing about transatlantic to me is you were talking about Jeff, how quickly they started writing this and then mixed it. And then by the time it came out and that whole span was six six months and, uh, I actually spoke to Pete in one of the interviews about that, about how fast they write and how quickly it turns around. And so I'm going to play that clip now. Yeah. Uh, we can check that out, and then we're going to go from that into is this really happening?
10: The thing is, everybody's got great ideas. I mean, we, we we do a we do a fair amount of preparation, so everybody comes to the table with good ideas, and we've passed the ideas around beforehand, so we're all familiar with each other's stuff. You know, for want of a better word, mm-hmm. each other's possible contributions, and then kind of Mike, I suppose, is the leader of, okay, well, here's the board, this is what, okay, well, who does, you know, let's, so we kind of list everything, and decide what it is we like, why we like it, and what we want to use, and where we want to use it, and we kind of make a bit of a plan, and then, but as we're writing, you know, if things aren't working, or things just, someone's, someone says, oh, you know, you instantly know when someone's thinking, this isn't working and constant instantly everybody but everybody in the room has at least two good ideas that yeah, they can throw true. into the pot so it's just ridiculous it is ridiculous <laughs> and it's fast and furious and you, you have to be on top of your game I certainly do is it
6: really
2: You know it, the the impact of, of this album and the timing of it was very interesting. Like Daniel explained earlier, uh, that that was a time of my life when I was into a lot heavier things. So to hear this and to have them come together was very refreshing. Um, and also the just the the impact of Neil plugging himself back in uh, to this band and the fact that it was a secret. So when um, I remember that that picture that Mike. Um, I guess it was, uh, it was early on in social media days where you almost saw the selfie of of him saying something like this is happening or something like that. And, and boom, it came out right away. So that I'm so grateful I get to talk about this, this song, you know, we're we're talking about dancing with eternal glory and, and the whirlwind reprise. It's, it's the ending. And, and up until this point, you know, you have to remember at this time, what we had heard from morse and and his uh and just in his in his compositional prowess um you know the the prior two albums uh were the first one was great the second one with stranger in your soul how that ended was just so super emotional so much so that that song is still their closing song in a lot of their live sets but but this song here you know when when you listen to this song and and from when it starts until when it ends you really have to listen to it with an open mind because before you had um love that never dies Mm. by the neil morse band before you had broken sky Mm. long day reprise um you know before you had uh crossing over mercy street reprise those all songs that when you listen to them even down to how mike is is playing the drums they're so comforting and they're so familiar. But this is where that started. When you listen to Dancing with Eternal Glory, I mean, you're coming up on more than 70 minutes worth of, of music by the time this is all said and done. And it is the perfect epic ending where they just need get to bring in just all the elements that you've heard for the past, you know, 60 plus minutes once this thing starts. And it is just the perfect ending to you know the a, a terrific album that came as a surprise in a time when especially those of us in in the states and even in Florida you know this kind of prog um hadn't been around for a while neil had been doing his own thing but when this came out it was just so cool and so refreshing and just so epic that it it deserves to be in this album closing out cuz i could not pick out a a more perfect pairing in that sense.
0: Well said, man. I agree. Yep. You know, I like after they do the dance with the eternal glory part and then they start bringing in all the different various parts uh, on the reprise part. And I really like the uh the man can feel part that they bring back when they're all singing together. It's such a cool way to bring that part back. That's that's one of my favorite parts of the whole album. Um and then the the epic orchestra just lasts, you know, 20 seconds is just as massive and awesome as you could end an album and I just love the, that um,
1: that section you referred to Roy of the, the A Man Can Feel reprise if you if you're signed up to Neil's streaming service Waterfall Um, recently we, we put up a, a transatlantic encore from the 2013 tour and um, Hase from Flower King sings that part of it and it's really it's really uh, special it's really really great version with him
4: what I love about that last part is how it feels like the song is never yeah. ending. They're always trying to find ways of finishing the song, but you keep you keep being lost yeah. in the whirlwind. You're always in the middle. It's it's great.
3: Yeah, lyr- lyrically it's fantastic too. I love the line, there's much more than uh, time and chance when the giver mm-hmm. of life is asking you to dance. I love that the last time they do that, and he kind of lays into the word dance, uh, just really good. And the whole song super balanced it's really good and i and it like daniel said i like that it continues to add more and more and more i mean that final flourish is awesome for,
1: for me for yeah. me and serious slightly serious point i know we we joke a bit but it's it's one of those songs for me uh, there was lots of stuff going on with us at that time and there were moments where particularly in that 2010 year where we did feel like we were in a whirlwind and it's funny how When I hear that, it sort of, you know, it brings me back to some of those times and actually how, you know, the stuff that all worked out really well in the end. Um, But it's funny how, I mean, Daniel talked about the emotional connection with, you know, with the music other people have said about it. Um, And I think that's the thing that kind of takes these albums into a into a league where 10 20 years people are still talking about them where people are going on social media say p- saying you know please on the tour play the whole of the whirlwind you know uh, you know that's you know w- when, when people think of Prague as being shred or you know being kind of just kind of show off or a, you know the the, the 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 real thing that about about that period of dream theater writing and, and about transatlantic as well is that there's also that emotional streak that the music actually people feel it um you know and that's that's something that's really really special about about a lot of these things we're talking about
4: okay so back then back in like 2009 2010 like i had a lot of personal things going on as well in my life so both of these albums they helped me go through that stuff and that's might be the reason not only the musical aspect of it but also the emotional lyrical part it's why they are so important and even when we are like we have some time that we're away from these albums and we don't listen to them for like a few months or something after a while we'll come back to them and we might think Ah, is it really is it really that good do i really like it that much hmm. and yeah <laughs> we do yeah that's that's how i feel at least
1: yeah one other thing i want to mention uh, because we talked about you know in a short a very short period of time 12 days making this phenomenal album but the the album also came with a nearly 60 minute bonus disc with about 30 minutes of other tracks on it which presumably are things that didn't actually fit into the the overall theme there's a song called for such a time as this which is one of my favorite neil songs there's some roina stuff on there there's a there's a Pete song um and then four covers the return of the giant hogweed a brilliant version which was reprised live at the high voltage festival that I was at with Steve Hackett that was just a a dream moment um another I was there too another oh that's right you were weren't you I'd forgotten that yeah that was the second time that we were in the same place without knowing each other yeah um a salty dog poco harum cover that beatles america and uh cover i need you and then soul sacrifice and it's you know again a lot of you know i always thought with those four or five songs they could have put them out as an ep you know a year later and it you know would have been something that was really good the other thing i want to ask just very briefly do any of you know in a whirlwind context what boba fett is
4: it's the added section they didn't put in uh set us free
1: right correct yeah yeah it's on the making of dvd there's a little piece of music and it was a little bit that they played around with and mike names most of the sections and he called this boba fett it never made the album but um whenever they played it live they slotted it into the place
6: right
3: Here's a fun fact. Uh, he had a little Boba Fett action figure next to his he drums did, on that tour. For that very reason. You can, you can see it. I'm sure I'm sure you knew that. Um, you didn't mention uh, my favorite track on the bonus disc is actually Spinning. You yeah, may yeah. not like it, but yeah, I, I cool really, song. really like it. I think it's a super solid track. It feels like it could have fit on the album, but hey, they only had 78 minutes to fit and uh, yep. it got cut. Great, great bonus track.
2: So an interesting connection between uh, Scenes from a Memory and um, – and and Transatlantic, which, you know, led to the whirlwind, was um, when Jordan Rudis joined Dream Theater and Liquid Liquid Tension Experiment was done. Uh, Portnoy explained that, you know, his his forming of Transatlantic was a reaction to not having a side project anymore in Liquid Tension Experiment. And that's when he, you know, thought of Neil and to get the supergroup Transatlantic together. So it's it's neat to see how one album, which was you know brought about by the familiarity of Jordan Rudis with Liquid Tension and how that was going to work, and he's now in Dream Theater. Suddenly, Mike doesn't have that side project, and all oh, it's put together, Transatlantic, and 10 years later comes out the whirlwind.
3: I, I think it's interesting to, to consider what the tie that binds these two albums together is. Obviously, some of the same musicians, Mike, namely, but... Um, and some similar approaches right but it's also I think from a musical and lyrical standpoint they both seek to answer some some deeper and more significant questions about life um, and also I think about the afterlife and so yeah. I think they do have that in common um, and so they, they both resonate I think with all people because they don't get so specific either I mean whether scenes from memory is about reincarnation and you know that's that's a very Eastern religion thing or certainly Neil's lyrics going to be more kind of judeo-christian but they both get to the to the core questions of life about where do we come from how do we deal with struggle where do we go when we die um and so i think that resonates with everyone on a certain level um and it's done very sincerely and it's done obviously musically very uh expertly and so i I think that's why albums will last a long time is when they can connect to you emotionally and then certainly as musicians and lovers of good music uh it, it hits on all those cylinders as well
0: it also harkens back to a time with both these albums where you didn't have 30 different albums coming out by all these bands at once. And I, mm. I'm not complaining about that. It's just a different time. You know, right now it's great because there's so much new music coming out. It's There's almost a new album or two every week. Um, but back then, yeah. I mean, it was a big event and it was an album that you stuck with for months because mm. – there really wasn't much out else that you were worried about, yeah. especially back in 99 for sure. But I think we also need to uh, give a, a special shout out to Mike uh, for being in both these bands and making what he's called his two best albums he's ever made are these two that we've talked about on this podcast. So, And of course all the various musicians on these albums from Dream Theater and from Transatlantic have put out so much good music between you know the different yeah. guys that we've talked about in this podcast you're talking about i mean they're responsible for so much of the music that we like as as prog fans it's pretty amazing so with that said um i think we've covered two great amazing classics uh if you have listened to this podcast and for some reason you haven't heard either one of these albums um, hopefully we've uh, turned you on to it, although I don't know why that would be the case. And, uh, again, guys, thank you for being a part of this. This was a lot of fun and, uh, I'm sure we will regroup for the, uh, best of 2019, uh, podcast, which is going to be probably <laughs> a five hour episode, uh, the way things are looking this year. And, um, yeah, it is a good year. Uh,
1: nines and tens. That's right. The way.
0: <laughs> and, uh. We're going to uh, close out, of course, with uh, the ending uh, of Dancing with Eternal Glory Whirlwind reprise, and uh, we'll see you all again next time.
2: Goodbye, everybody. Bye-bye. Peace.